Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. I want to welcome all of you who are here live and all those who you're watching online. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us and study God's Word together. So, there's an old parable that says Satan once called to himself the leaders of the emissaries of hell. And he told them he wanted to send one of them to earth in order to lead men and women astray and one step closer to the damnation of their souls. And then he asked which of them would like to go. And a creature stepped forward and said, Satan, I will go. And he said to him, well, if I send you to earth, what will you tell the children of men? And he says, well, I will tell them there is no heaven. And Satan said, no, too many people will not believe you because God has placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. And besides all that, people know just intuitively that goodness and righteousness will one day win the victory. So you may not go. Well, then another creature steps forward, this one darker and fouler than the first, and says, Satan, I'll go. And he says, well, if I send you to earth, what will you tell the children of men? And he says, Satan, I will tell them there is no hell. And Satan looked at him and said, no, they won't believe you either. Because God has placed something in mankind known as conscience. This inner voice that not only testifies to the fact that goodness will one day triumph, but that evil will be defeated. So you too may not go. And then finally, one last creature stepped forward. This one from the darkest recesses of hell and says, Satan, I will go. And Satan says, if I send you to earth, what will you tell men and women to lead them astray? And he said, I will simply tell them there is no hurry. And Satan said, go. So we're in this series called Live Like There's No Tomorrow. And what we're doing here is we're walking through the last couple chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And if you were here last week, I mentioned the fact that the study of Bible prophecy, what God has to say about the future, can be tremendously encouraging for us as believers because we can look forward to the day of the rapture. But whereas believers will be taken out of this world before the period of God's wrath, known as the end times, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, unbelievers are going to be left behind. And that's not something to look forward to. So biblical prophecy, it's comforting for us, it's encouraging for us, it gives hope to us as Christians. But for unbelievers, I believe biblical prophecy serves as a warning of the impending dangers ahead should they choose not to put their faith in Jesus. As a matter of fact, I believe that God has spelled out so many events in the tribulation, the end times, the day of the Lord, in order to encourage unbelievers to come to him while there's still time, before all hell breaks loose here on earth. You know, there's an old story about this guy named Jimmy who received a parrot for his birthday. And this parrot was already full grown, had a previous owner. And unfortunately, the parrot had developed a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every other word out of this parrot's mouth was either an insult or a cuss word. And 
So Jimmy's like, well, what am I going to do with this parrot? And so he decides, well, you know what? I can correct this parrot's behavior. I'm just going to speak polite, kind words to the parrot over and over. Didn't work. And then he decided, well, maybe the parrot just needs a little calming down. So he would play soothing classical music in the background all day, hoping the parrot would just kind of settle down. That didn't work either. And over time, Jimmy starts to get a little more frustrated. Every once in a while, he starts yelling at the parrot and taking the parrot and shaking the parrot, right? Just made the parrot worse. And so finally, one day out of frustration, Jimmy takes the parrot, grabs him, opens up his freezer, and throws the parrot in there and shuts the freezer door. <laughs> and at first, there's squawking and swearing, kicking and screaming. And then all of a sudden, there was absolute silence. Well, Jimmy got a little worried that maybe he had actually hurt the bird. And so he quickly ran over to the freezer, opened it up. And when he did, the parrot very calmly stepped out onto Jimmy's extended arm looked up at Jimmy and said, I am so sorry for the ways in which my words and actions have offended you. Will you forgive me? I will endeavor to change my behavior. And Jimmy was astonished. He's like, what, what in the world changed this bird's attitude? And, and he was about to ask him what had happened, what had made the change, when the parrot looked up at him and said, may I ask what the chicken did? <laughs> I don't know why I like that story so much, but... Sometimes we need a little wake-up call, don't we? I think Bible prophecy is one of the ways that God warns the unbeliever of their final destination if they don't turn to him. But another purpose of Bible prophecy, as we're going to see in our passage today, is for us as Christians, for us to mature in holiness, that is to stand out in this world, to be different. And that should be reflected in the way we live our lives, in the moral quality of our lives, our values, our priorities, our pursuits. And Paul actually uses several analogies in our passage today to illustrate this. He talks about light versus darkness, sleep versus alertness, soberness versus drunkenness. See, Bible prophecy isn't written just to satisfy our curiosity or our urge for the sensational. No, Bible prophecy is designed to help us as Christians mature in holiness. And so this morning, we're going to pick up our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul encourages Christians to stand out, to be different, to be holy in this world. And pay careful attention in this passage because Paul shifts often between the pronouns you and them. And that is very significant because you as believers are set apart from them, the unbelievers who will be left to endure the day of the Lord. So let's take a look the differences between you and them. The first major difference is knowledge versus ignorance. Verse 1 says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You remember back in chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul began a new section by saying, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. And then he taught them about this important doctrine that we call the rapture of the church. But in this chapter, Paul starts out on an entirely different note. He tells them, you already know from the Old Testament, from my teachings about this subject called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, uh, Paul had just finished this discussion here about the rapture and the resurrection of the saints. And the day of the Lord is the next event in God's prophetic calendar. If you take a look at the chart here, you'll see that this period of God's wrath known as the day of the Lord, it begins with the seven years of tribulation where all hell kind of breaks loose here on earth. 
And then after that, you've got the battle of Armageddon. You've got the second coming of Christ. You've got the millennial kingdom. And Jesus actually spoke about all this in Matthew 24 and 25. And the Jewish believers who knew their Old Testaments, they were very well aware of this as well. And that's why Paul says about times and dates, we don't need to write to you for you know very well. That term very well in the Greek, akribo, it means precisely. It means accurately. Unlike the rapture that they weren't informed about, they knew very well about this day of the Lord. And the Greek terms, times and dates here, chronos and kairos, those were often used to speak of seasons or periods of time. So basically, Paul is saying about this season of time after the rapture called the day of the Lord, you know very well. Did a little research on this and just tried to figure out what did the Jews really understand about the day of the Lord? And one scholar estimated that there are 1,845 references to the second coming of Christ in the Old Testament alone. 1,845 references. And the reason there's so much information on this topic is because the day of the Lord revolves mainly around God's dealings with the nation of Israel, his chosen people back then. Now, the day of the Lord begins, again, if you look at this chart again, It begins with the judgment on the nations and Israel in seven years of tribulation. And then after that, God is going to fulfill his promises. God made a whole bunch of promises to the Jews back in the Old Testament that he's not yet fulfilled. And he will fulfill those promises in a thousand-year reign, a millennial reign of Christ the Messiah here on earth. And then that will conclude with the judgment of Satan and all unbelievers. So the day of the Lord is this extended period of time with judgments and blessings. But again, this is going to take place after the church-age saints have already been removed from this planet. Okay, let's move on to verse 2. Paul says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, because the rapture is imminent, meaning it could come at any time, and the rapture kicks off this period called the day of the Lord, that means that both the rapture and the day of the Lord are imminent events. The day is coming swiftly. And as long as uh, unbelievers just ignore it, though, they're not going to be aware of it. It's going to come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. Now, God, I think, has given unbelievers plenty of warning about this. But according to what Paul says here, the world will not know when the day of the Lord is going to hit them any more than a person knows the day that they're going to be robbed. You know, I doubt you'll ever go to your mailbox and pull out a postcard that says, Dear resident, this notice is to inform you that I'll be robbing your house next Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Right? Probably not going to happen. You know, please make efforts to not be there. And if you don't mind, leave me a key and location of all your valuables. I'll try not to make a mess. Just email the location of your key to yourthief at google.com. You're not going to get a postcard like that, right? You're not going to know when it's going to happen. Thief of the night, Paul says. A thief of the night. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to be unexpected. Which, by the way, leads to the second difference in verses 3 to 5. Expectancy versus surprise. This is a big one. Okay, here comes our first shift in pronouns between they and them in verse 3 and you and we in verses 4 and 5. Pay attention to this. It's really important. While people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come on who? Them, suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You notice Paul does not include himself or his readers with those who experience the day of the Lord. Those third-person pronouns are reserved for the unbelievers who are left behind at the rapture. In their spiritual blindness, they'll be expecting peace and safety, but instead, sudden destruction will come upon them. But that wrath of God, it isn't for us. That's made abundantly clear in verse 9. It says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Those in darkness will be surprised like a thief, but because you are sons of the light, you won't be around to be surprised. Biblical scholar J. Hampton Keithley III has this to say about these verses. I think he summarizes it really well. He says, here, Paul declares unequivocally that believers are not in that realm of darkness so that day could overtake them. The phrase, but you, in verse 4 is very emphatic in the original Greek. Paul is contrasting the destiny of believers with that of unbelievers. The day as a thief can't overtake them. Because of what they have in Christ, they can't be subject to such a day. Verse 5 gives the positive reason why. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. The coming of the day of the Lord, and this is Paul's subject, is a day of darkness. It's a day of wrath. And we as believers cannot be appointed to such a day because Christ bore God's wrath for us. So believers, by virtue of their new nature and position as sons of the living God, can have no part in such a day. And praise God that we won't be around for that day. Now, as believers, we can know the approximate seasons of time, but we can't know exactly when it's going to happen. You know, people all the time, they speculate. Some people even say, I know when it's going to happen. They claim to know the precise details. We don't know precisely when it's going to happen. But as I mentioned last week, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in our generation, in our lifetime. Many of the signs have been fulfilled. I mean, think about this. Israel returning to Palestine in 1948. The gospel being preached to the whole world via online media. The the rapid escalation of events in Europe and the Middle East. The groundwork being laid for a one-world government and economy. I mean, all those things are setting the stage for the coming of the Antichrist. And did you know that for years, students of prophecy have predicted that the Antichrist would arise out of some type of United States of Europe? See, the signs are there, but nobody knows exactly when it's going to happen. Look back at verse 3. He says, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. When that time hits, there is no escape, okay? It's going to be like birth pangs on a woman. You know, a mom knows the season of her child's birth, but she does not know when those labor pains are going to hit, right? I mean, you know, sometimes they can come at a very inopportune time. But when those labor pains begin, you know that you know that you know it's time. You know, imagine a young husband and his wife, they go out to a movie together, and she is nine months pregnant. And about five minutes into the action film, she nudges her husband and says, honey, it's time. Okay, what would you think of the guy if he said, hey, can't we just wait until the end of the movie here? Would that go over well, ladies? <clears throat> no. You say dead husband, right? When it's time, it's time. It is certain. There's no turning back. There is no escape. It's certain. It's even more certain with Jesus. 
When it's time, the unbelievers who are left here, who are living in darkness, will be judged for their rejection of Christ. Now, in verse 6, Paul shifts his focus to the practical ramifications of all that he's been teaching here. And he points out that since we're of the light and, and not of the darkness, we ought to live like it. Which leads us to our third distinctive in this text, the difference of soberness versus drunkenness. In verses 6 to 8, beginning with the phrase, so then... Paul gives the practical application of all this. He says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The difference between believers and unbelievers should be like night and day, Paul says. And since we're not of the night, we shouldn't be living like we're spiritually asleep. You know that word asleep in the Greek, very interesting term, katayudo. It doesn't mean a gentle, restful, peaceful sleep. There's actually another term for that in the Greek. We talked about that last week, koimeo. Now, katayudo speaks of a state of sleep that is wild and restless, was often used as a synonym for immorality or godless behavior. The opposite of katheudo is self-control or sobriety, which is exactly why Paul contrasts self-control with drunkenness here. He's saying that we should live spiritually sober lives. Kind of reminds me of Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Night versus day, asleep versus awake, soberness versus drunkenness. Paul gives this whole series of contrasts here. And then in verse 8, he shares the means by which we can remain self-controlled and sober in the midst of this dark world we live. And it's fascinating to me because it comes back to that classic Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. Look at this. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, Paul turns to the metaphor of a soldier on duty, you know, one of his favorite illustrations of the Christian life. You know, the Roman breastplate covered a soldier from his neck to his waist. It protected his vital organs there. And that's what faith and love do. Faith in God protects inwardly. A love for people protects outwardly. And then in addition to faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation, it guards our heads, it guards our minds against attacks on our thinking. See, knowing that we won't be around for that judgment, knowing that we won't face the wrath of God when Jesus returns, that brings peace and assurance like nothing else. It's vital to have that hope of salvation. But notice here that Paul says, putting on faith, hope, and love you got to put it on. That, that's a decision you've got to make every day at the start of your day. Now, when you woke up this morning, you had a decision to make. Am I going to put on clothes or am I not going to put on clothes? Thanks for deciding yes, by the way. But, <laughs> but in the same way, you got to decide, am I going to put on faith? Am I going to put on hope? Am I going to put on love? I mean, we can decide I'm going to put on an attitude of bitterness. I'm going to put on an attitude of laziness, an attitude of whatever, grumpiness, laziness, sloth, whatever, anger worry, or we can decide to put on faith and hope and love. We choose to either live in the flesh or live by the Spirit. All right, 
In the final few verses of this passage, Paul reminds us one last time that we will be saved from the wrath of God during the day of the Lord. He differentiates between salvation and wrath. Look at verses 9 to 11. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Paul says, encourage one another with this truth. Our salvation means we won't be around to suffer the wrath of God. Jesus died for our sins. He delivered us from that judgment. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Do you realize that's the number one term for Christians in the New Testament, to be in Christ? And that means because we're in Christ, we are protected by Christ. We're protected from God's wrath. Because when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees us covered in the righteousness of Christ. Well, that is super encouraging. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. And we're to help our brothers and sisters in Christ grow in the Lord and stay spiritually awake. You know, a spiritually awake person is someone who has a calm, sane outlook in life. He's not complacent. He's not frustrated. He's not fearful. I mean, he hears the tragic news of the day, but he doesn't lose hope. He experiences the difficulties of life, but he doesn't give up. And he knows that his future is secure in God's hands. And so he lives each and every moment wisely and obediently. Folks, it's all good news for us in the end, but it's not good news for those who are not in Christ, for those who are outside of the body of Christ. And I think that should motivate each and every one of us to think about the people in our life that we know, the people we love, and get out there and share Jesus with them. Encourage them to put their faith in Jesus while there's still time. You know, God loves every single human being on this planet with a deep and unconditional love. He does not want a single one of them to perish. But the Bible also says that God will not force anyone to love them back. And so he gives each individual a choice to trust in his son Jesus or reject that offer. And even now, God is reaching out to people all around the globe. Right? You saw this in that video earlier in Japan, in South America, Africa, India, all around the globe. God is reaching out to people through Christians, through churches, through missionaries, through the Bible, through angelic visitations, near-death experiences, and a host of other means. God is drawing right now. He's calling people in while there's still time. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. But one day, as we're reading right here, God is going to say, enough. And he's sending his son, Jesus, to come to this earth and wipe out evil once and for all. And if you're not on the right side, his side, the day of the Lord will not be pretty. You know, I read recently that one in three Americans, think about this, one in three Americans believe that some type of apocalyptic event will occur in their lifetime. One in three. But that belief doesn't seem to be changing their attitude, their behavior toward God. You know, perhaps they bought into that lie of Satan I mentioned earlier. Ah, there's no hurry. There's no hurry. If you pay attention to the news, you know that out in California and all along the West Coast, wildfires are constantly wreaking havoc. 
And no matter how much warning authorities give people, oftentimes people just don't heed those warnings. They don't believe that those wildfires can actually move faster than people can flee. And so oftentimes they just don't get out in time. Firefighters repeat, repeatedly warn them, warn them, warn them. You got to go now. You got to go now. And they're like, no, I'm going to grab this. I'm going to grab that. There, there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You know, all you and I can do spiritually is to urge the people we know who don't know Jesus to come to him by faith while there's still time, before the believers are taken out of this world and they're left to face the day of the Lord. And so my prayer is that these prophetic words this morning will encourage your hearts personally and encourage you to spur on other believers. But more than that, my prayer is that these words will spur you on to share the love of God, the good news of Jesus with everyone you know who one day might be left behind. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize that these are sobering words. As encouraging as it is for us as believers to know that we'll be out of here. It also should prompt us to have a passion, a heart for those who will have to endure the day of the Lord and the challenges and the trials here on earth. Lord, I, I just pray for anybody here, if they're not absolutely certain that they know you, that they are in Christ, that they would simply right now in the quietness of their heart say, Jesus, I'm reaching out to you. I'm believing by faith that you died for my sins, that you've forgiven me and given me the gift of eternal life because we're saved by faith in Jesus alone. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by the truths of the end times and also spurred on to think about the people in our lives who don't know you and to find a way, somehow, some way, to share the good news of Jesus with them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we leave this morning, I want to encourage you, as I did last week, to contemplate the rapture still. Think about it every morning when you wake up. Go ahead and think, hey, this could be the day. How exciting. I could be with the Lord Jesus this very day. See if that doesn't encourage your heart. But then add to that a prayer in the morning. Say, God, who do I know? Who will come across my path today? Just show me somebody that I can share the love and good news of Jesus with. Can we do that? All right, let's do it. Have a great week, guys. <clears throat>